What up, what up? Welcome back to the Action Academy podcast, the show that teaches you how to replace corporate with cash flow and helps you unlock your inner entrepreneur. My name is Brian Lubin, your humble host and guide on your journey to financial freedom. I left my corporate job in March of 2022, and since that point have been building a company from zero to $10 million a year while traveling around the world. Today's episode is a coaching call clip from my buddy, Matt Faircloth, who literally wrote the Bigger Pockets book on raising private capital. Matt has bought and managed over a thousand doors in his multifamily portfolio. And in today's coaching call, he is going over how to pivot from single family real estate investing to multifamily real estate investing, the teams, the equity splits, the partnerships that need to be formed, and all the way to how to file with the SEC for your syndication. Bear with us today because this clip is from a live Zoom call within the Action Academy community, the back end community of the podcast. If you like what you're hearing in these clips and it brings you a lot of value, just imagine the value that you would get being on the freaking Zoom call with the person and being able to ask them your burning questions and get direct feedback and direct coaching from not only the speaker, but the other members on the call. Proximity is power, people. And if you want to be shoulder to shoulder with these multimillionaire mentors and also with high-performing peers and partners as well, you go in the show description and click link to book a call to check out the Action Academy community. Now, without any further ado, here is Mr. Matt Faircloth. So we got a couple of people on here right now that are looking to take down their first multifamily property. Let's do it. Um, And we got another people that are on that road to 100 units, right? 100 doors. So a lot of the people on here already own real estate. They've already been through a process. A lot of single families, some Airbnbs scattered across the call here. Yeah. So what I really like to talk to you about today is the actual process by which somebody that is a single family investor will go into multi. For an example of what team do you need to build as a new investor that's looking to take down maybe a 40 unit, a 50 unit? Sure, no problem. I, when I first got started and ran singles and flips and that kind of thing, my wife and I did most of it ourselves. And, and that's fine on the smaller side, but as you grow and scale, there is a need for more skill and more experience and also more, I'm good at this, you're good at that. I call them superpowers, right? We developed at DeRosa four different superpowers that we think are absolutely just, this is what you have to be great at. Uh, you need these four greatnesses on your team. The four different required are an acquisition specialist. We call it the hunter, right? Someone who's there to find the deals, find the markets. And what having that person on your team will prevent you from doing is being the person that you might meet at a meetup or whatever. And that'll tell you, oh, I'm investing in, or I'm looking in 20 different markets in the United States. No, you're not. You're just looking on LoopNet. You really need to pick a market and own that market as a market that you're shopping. Just one, right? Not two, not four, not seven. A market, Kirky, New Mexico. That's it. Um, that And that market specialist is then their job on your team. Their role is to infiltrate that market with you and to go in, maybe fly there, go meet with brokers, go drive around, found that, find the good blocks, bad blocks, get to know that market like the back of their hand and build all the relationships there. If you guys are buying at the size that wholesalers get involved, get to know those wholesalers. If you're only on the broker side where brokers are doing deals, get to know all those brokers. That's the hunter. There and there's a more than I don't want to get at all this right now, but there's different personality traits that we think are necessary for each of these four different people. There's a reason why, when some, by the way, when some people are like, oh, I don't like raising money, it's not that you need to get good at raising money if you're going to buy multifamily. You need someone who is. You don't need to get good at Excel or good at spreadsheets or good at analyzing deals if you want to buy a multifamily. You might not be good at that. Guess what? I'm not. 
and we own thousands of units and I'm not good at underwriting deals, but I got people that are, that can help me with that. And that's the second person is the brain, the analyst. Then their job is to take that deal that the hunter produces and turn it into a business plan. And for a single family home, Brian, business plan is pretty straight up. <laughs> Put a tenant in, when, when the year comes over, or comes up for the rent to change, increase it to the market, rinse and repeat. Not that hard. But for multifamily, business plans can be very dynamic and it can involve everything from deferred maintenance to capital improvement plans to how you're going to structure the debt because there's a lot of different ways you can structure debt with multifamily. Brain assembles all that. Then there's the capital raiser, which is what I do for my company. And they're raising money. And a lot of times they're also finding the debt spot, finding the loan sponsors or sponsoring the loan themselves. They get involved in the negotiations of the loan commitments and things like that. Because a lot of times the money person is the one that is sponsoring the loan or that are, is figuring that out. So that just puts them in conversations with the lenders too. They're also handling, as you do a few deals, they're handling investor relations. So they're handling who's sending the, distri the distributions out to investors and when this investor wants his K-1 for his taxes, whatever, how do you get it to them? They do all that stuff, which as you guys have to think about is you guys are going to be raising equity from investors. Getting a check from an investor is the first thing, but then you've got to maintain that relationship for probably up to five years. Who's going to do that? Then the last one, the hammer, which is some people, it's just asset manager, but I like the name hammer better because it really has to do with what that person does. Was you got to go, they just, they're browbeating everyone. Like just go, 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 come on. Managers, contractors, vendors, roofers, everybody uh, are going to hear from the asset manager in that. And their job really is to take the business plan that's produced by the underwriter and bring it into fruition. So there are different personalities, styles, and different people that it takes in that we equation. And I've seen people do both. I've seen people try and do all four, forget it. Not that you're going to do all four things badly, but I've seen people do two very effectively in that circle. Okay. <clears throat> so maybe that's advice you'd give to somebody starting out is maybe pick one or two. That's like their mm -hmm. proclivity and then find somebody else strategically that would fill the bucket of the other two. Yeah. It's like there's majors and minors. If you're... I hate <laughs> underwriting, by the way. Guess, guys, guess why I'm not doing the underwriting calls? I yeah. hate it. Every time we talk underwriting, I die inside. Yeah. Parts of my soul that evaporate every single time we bring out spreadsheets on these calls, but I know that you guys want it, so we talk about it. And it's okay <laughs> to own it. that, though, Brian. Like, I, It took me a while to admit to that, to be like, man, I'm an engineer by trade. I went to school for engineering. Like, I'd limp through the door at Virginia Tech to graduate, right? With a degree in engineering, I should be good at underwriting, but I'm not, and I hate it. And it took a while to admit that I'm terrible at this and I need people that are great at it, not good at it, great at it, and can feed their family with the money I can pay them to do it. That's what it's all about. Brian, you are a capital raiser and you're also probably good at finding deals. You're a relationship guy, right? And there are commonalities between some of these things. The hammer and the brain are typically introverts, right? People that don't need people. By the way, an extrovert is fed by people in conversations and like they want more of it, right? And it's okay to admit this, but an introvert is drained by those things, right? Is drained, like the more people they're around, the more me time they need. Like, man, I'm just like, I've, I go to conferences with my partner, Justin, and we'll be going like the happy hour going on or whatever. He's like, man, I'm tired. I'm gonna go up to my room. I'm like, no, no, man, there's, you see the people? Look, we're gonna go talk to all those people and go figure out what they're all doing or whatever. And that makes my eyes cross. I think I'm gonna go up to my room and watch and get a six pack and watch Netflix. Oh. If anybody relates to that, 
it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's an introvert. And that's someone who needs their own brain time. And that could be done underwriting deals or just thinking on their own. They don't like an extrovert thinks outside their mouth, thinks out of their mouth. The words just are their thoughts. <laughs> an introvert thinks them out, thinks things out first and then says them, which is mm-hmm. hard for me to relate to. Yeah, I know. Same. And then I realized, <laughs> but that's the cool thing about doing these calls, everyone, is because yeah. now like this is stuff that you don't really hear about in the books, right? Mm-hmm. You hear about the types. You say, yeah, you need this person, but you think that you need to be the but person. Who are they? Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, you're not. Each one of <laughs> special, unique yeah. skill sets that we bring to the table and special proclivities that we bring to the table. Yeah. So you were talking about capital raising, and that's literally your book is Raising Private Capital. So would you recommend, I think I already know the answer to this, but for somebody that's in here that's looking to take down their first deal, maybe 20 units or higher, which is what we're talking about for most when we say that, it's like 20 units and higher. I would probably stray away from syndication to begin and just focus on a handful of private investors, maybe Mm -hmm. do a JV deal. Can yep. you hit a little bit about that and your thoughts on that, about when yeah. you should start syndicating, if at all? Yeah. So my first like couple of deals was, were with people that was like what you would call a JV, where like they, they had a job, right? And you can work with people that give you equity if they've got some sort of role, if they have an active role in what you're doing. It doesn't have to be like as active as yours is, but like I had a guy who kept the books. He gave me 50K. We did a bunch of deals with the money and he just kept the books and that was it. And he also was the guarantor on the on He was a sponsor on the loan alongside me. That was good enough for the SEC anyway. So we didn't do a straight SEC level syndication until we raised over a million. And this, there's no hurdle. It's not like the SEC is, oh yeah, sure. That should be a registered syndication with us over a million. It just really has to do with how many investors you have in and what you have them doing. So it depends on whether or not you want the investors involved in that or what. It's not that avoiding a syndication is not a bad thing. It's just you got to pay legal to set up the, to set up the docs for you. And there's a little bit of compliance stuff. But registering your deal with the SEC federally is free. It's a little known fact. The SEC, it's just go to the SEC's website and you can put your company in. Brian is awesome. I can set up that LLC as a deal that's excluded from five through because of 506B regulation D. That's it. Done. It's a one page form. Sweet. So if you're looking at a deal, rewind the clock back to like maybe your first couple of the deals. How did you structure those deals with different equity splits? And how what's some advice that you can give to somebody taking down their first one about how they should divvy up the equity yeah. and the responsibilities? Times are changing, Brian. So let's talk about today because I I think that the way that the splits I would give investors today versus what we would give people a couple of years ago are like night and day. And I've talked to other syndicator buddies of 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 all of ours that you know as well that are turning the model upside down. And the reason they're doing that is because you got to start with those that are smart are starting with investors first. They're looking at it and saying, okay, this here's the aggregate returns in the deal. And you should always underwrite a deal based on the total return the deal is going to make. Forget about splits for a second. The deal is going to make an AR 24% on the money that on the money that it's in that's in the deal, assuming that you wrote that entire check. This would give me a return on investment of 24% per year. Fine. How much do I have to give my investors? Okay, let me carve it up. How much risk factor are they taking? How much cash on cash? Am I going to give them during the life cycle of the deal and everything? But that's typically how you do it is you look at the global structure of the deal. Now what's happened recently is people have realized that 
to make deals work in today's economy, either the syndicator has to commit, they're going to just buy the deal and sell it in a year or two and have it make no cash at all. Because a lot of these deals are low to no cash flow going in. And you just cross your fingers and hope the market goes up. You've seen these offerings out there now <laughs> that have really low cap rates. Even though they're going to sell in three years, they have a super low cap rate today. And at that same low cap rate three years from now. So you can try and keep the appreciation hot, buying like a hot potato. I'm going to buy it, do a few things to it, and then sell it, sell it in a couple of years. You can do that. Or you can do what we do, which is more of a cash flow model. We're really disregarding appreciation for the foreseeable future. And we're just looking at appreciation. I'm sorry, looking at cash flow. And if you do that, you can't really pay a pref anymore. And so we're not paying a pref anymore. Like we're not modeling deals that pay preferred returns to investors. Just investors get a straight split on equity. If the deal makes money, they make money. That's a real cash flow model. A pref model is one that you can accrue a lot of it and you'll catch up when the property sells. A pref model works really well for deals that have a three to five year life cycle. I don't think a lot of deals are going to have that life cycle moving forward. I think things are going to go low. We're going to be holding properties for longer while we wait for things to make more sense and for things to come back up or whatever it is, or for things to become less stagnant and that. So the longer you hold, the better you're going to be. And that means you need deals to make cash flow. You can't have deals that just pile up pref and you hope you can pay it back to investors when you sell. It's not going to make sense. Can you hit a little bit? That answers your question, doesn't it? Can you hit a little bit more about a preferred return for somebody that's unfamiliar? Sure. A preferred return is like it's an obligation the deal has to pay investors a certain rate of return on their money. And it's right and it's paid first before the general partner, us, make any money at all. That's not a bad thing, but. You guys got to realize where the concept of preferred return came from. Preferred returns were originally offered only on development deals. If I'm building a skyscraper, I would tell investors, hey, listen, you guys get the first cut of profit. And so for as long as your money was in this deal, I'm going to pay you at least 8% on your money and you guys get the first slice of profit. So your deal's in the money for two years. I'm going to pay you 8% on your money for the two years that your money was in this deal. And then you get a chunk of profit above. That model worked its way over into multifamily recently, not re- not 30 years ago, recently. And that's been the way multifamily has been structured because multifamily has become the hot potato economy. Let me buy it for 50K a door, flip it for 120 a door, make millions of bucks for everybody a couple in a couple of years. That's worked. But that's not the way that things are going to go moving forward. I think you're going to see the pref go away a bit more. But to answer your question, it is a minimum obligation that are owed, that's owed to investors. It's not a loan. If, Brian, if you loan me money, I have to pay you that money back or you can sue me or you can foreclose on the property or whatever. The pref is thought of this way. It's the first tranche of profit up to that amount of return on people's money. So it doesn't have to, but if the deal can't, the GP doesn't make any money at all. So it's the deal's obligated up into that pref being met to spill over to investors. Above that, the GP so gets the interests paid. are aligned. Yes. So how the are interests you- are not aligned? The interests are not aligned with a pref. The pref disaligns interest. The really? pref makes it yes. Think about it. But it adds a safety net. Yeah. It's the investors think that it gives them this, oh, gives a warm little safety blanket. No, 
what it does is it forces a GP because this is not a hobby for any of us, right? We need to make money at some point, right? We want to hold our breath for a little while. But what it does is it forces the GP to make decisions like saying, listen, I got to sell because I haven't paid myself in three years on this thing. And so I got to get paid. And the investor may do better if they if we hold the deal for longer. But if the deal's deferred the prep for a while, the GP's like, hey man, uncle, I got to get these investors paid. I got to get myself paid. The pref, if it starts getting accrued, will force a sale earlier than it should happen. Okay. It's a disalignment. People think it's an alignment, but it is not. So how are you? So you would recommend for a new investor doing their first couple of deals right now to do the cash flow model? And then if so, how did they position that to investors when they're giving them a presentation that may be used yeah. to they, they, these investors may be used to a pref return based off of the last 10 years of multifamily? And then how do they position this new model, the cash flow model, <laughs> opposed to that? Yeah, two choices there. You have to re-educate them. And most capital raisers are te- are good teachers. Those that know how to raise money know how to teach because you're we all live in this little bubble where you and I know what pref is. Everybody's heard of the pref. Like my uncle Charlie has never heard of the pref. And nobody and a lot, not many people in your investor circles have unless they do a lot of investing, unless they're very savvy, very sophisticated investors. So I would say it's actually easier. And let you give them the speech I just gave you. The pref's a disalignment, and it's actually better to not you to not have a pref because we can hold longer cash flow, all those things, right? That's the speech you give a pref used to investor. If you're talking to somebody who's not used to pref, I've had to explain what it is to people more often. They think they the way they you have to it's that you have to say it's almost as if you loan the deal money. It's like the deal owes you an interest rate. You have to use interest as a context, but it's not true. The deal didn't loan that you didn't loan the deal money. It's not the debt. The deal does not have a debt to you. It does not owe you that pref. If the deal can pay the pref, it does. So the pref is misunderstood by even sophisticated investors, by new investors, it is commonly misunderstood. So I think it's an opportunity to explain to investors, hey, listen, 50-50 split, 60-40 split, 80-20 split, whatever the deal's able to, whatever you think works as a split. We make a dollar, you get 20 cents. We make a dollar, you get 50 cents. Whatever the split is, it is so much easier to explain that to investors. And my first many deals, that we didn't have a pref. And we just would send investors a portion of proceeds. We made 10 grand this month. Here you go. Here's your profit. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It's I mean, cleaner. It yeah. yeah. I could explain the equity split like that to my nine-year-old. I don't think I could explain a pref to him. Very fair. Hey, real quick, if you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it, so I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want, and I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.